Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, for a long time now, the lines between the legislature's role and the executive's job have been blurred. Legislators granted broad powers to the president, and the president gets to make a lot of rules via administrative action and executive order. But the third branch of government, the courts, have made recent interpretations that have put boundaries on how much Congress can defer to the executive office. And the latest uh, is the, uh, the latest in this is the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And my guest today is Rich Samp of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a nonprofit, nonpartisan civil rights group that protects constitutional freedoms from violations by the administrative state. And they wrote an amicus brief in support of the petitioner. Rich, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our discussion, and I'm, I'm very happy to be included in this program. What was going on in this case? Well, let me just uh, provide, first of all, what I think is a slight correction of what you said before. <laughs> okay. Uh, the uh, problem is not that Congress has actually delegated hugely broad authority to administrative agencies. It's rather that the courts, beginning back in the 1980s, began to say that we are going to assume that unless uh, Congress said otherwise, that when Congress has set up an administrative agency to do such things as make sure the air is clean, that we're going to assume that Congress has delegated pretty much any authority that uh, the agency thinks is reasonable to fulfill that mission. Uh, and that really isn't what the laws generally say. Instead, this is just simply a presumption of congressional intent that the courts uh, were for many years uh, uh, assuming to exist. In the last 10 years or so, the courts have begun to say, no, we're going to look much more carefully at the actual text that has been adopted by uh, at, uh, by Congress in deciding whether or not the agency has the authority to do what it wants to do. So in the case of uh, West Virginia versus EPA, this was an effort beginning back during the Obama administration to uh, basically rejigger the entire power system in this country. Uh, for a long time, the uh, largest source of electric power has come from coal-powered plants, which I think most people would agree uh, release the most amount of pollutants. And so uh, EPA for decades has been trying to make coal plants cleaner to the extent that they can. And, and I think that uh, EPA efforts in that regard uh, clearly are within their statutory authority. However, during the Obama administration, they decided, well, the real problem is that coal plants and, to a lesser extent, gas-fired plants can't ever be made to be as clean as we'd like them to be because they both uh, uh, emit a significant amount of carbon dioxide. So we ought to 
basically uh, change the entire power grid to move in the direction of renewable sources of power, uh, chiefly uh, uh, wind power and solar power. And, uh, and what the Obama administration did was to adopt a plan based on a very obscure provision of the Clean Air Act that had never been used for this purpose before, that if it had been implemented, would have essentially required pretty much all uh, coal-fired plants to close down over the course of the next couple of decades. Uh, we had a change of administration in 2016, and the Trump administration repealed that Obama administration plan and said, no, we're going to return this obscure provision of the Clean Air Act back to its original meaning, which is that we can require individual plants to be as clean as possible, but we can't basically uh, require companies to close down their coal plants and start uh, uh, producing their energy uh, through solar and wind. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, proponents of the original plan of the Obama administration then sued to try to overturn the Trump administration plan. And what they said was, well, no, the, uh, the Obama administration was the one that had properly interpreted the law. And the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia issued a decision that said, we agree with these clean energy people and that uh, the Obama administration got it right. The Trump administration got it wrong. Uh, and by that time, the uh, Biden administration was in power and it said, well, we're not going to appeal from that decision. We kind of like that. And in fact, it's our intent to come up with a uh, brand new plan that will probably essentially reinstate the one that the Obama administration had. Uh, so a number of individuals, uh, including um, uh, power companies, as well as a number of states led by the state of West Virginia, which obviously has a strong interest in coal production, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in June, by a 6-3 decision, uh, ruled against the current EPA in favor of the Trump EPA and said that, in fact, the Clean Air Act never gave the uh, EPA the broad power that uh, it had uh, tried to assert that it really is not allowed to revamp the entire industry. And you're saying this is not because it delegated them too much power, but rather in the actual text of the law itself, it just didn't give them that authority. Exactly. And it's just been correct. a court interpretation. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about the history of that? You said it was only in the 80s that, um, that they, that's uh, basically it, the administration can do whatever it wants, even if it goes beyond what Congress has authorized it. Well, there was a decision from the Supreme Court in the early 1980s uh, by the name of Chevron. And the Chevron case essentially said that when uh, Congress uh, delegates authority to an agency to write uh, rules and regulations, we will presume that that authority to issue rules and regulations uh, gives the uh, agency the authority to fill up any gaps in the statute so that if a, if a statute is clear about exactly what has to be done, then of course the agency must comply. But when the uh, agency 
uh, instead uh, says that, uh, well, the, the statute looks a little bit unclear, the court said, okay, we will at that point defer to your interpretation of the statute as to what you uh, think is unclear. And over the years, Chevron, what's known as the Chevron Doctrine, became broader and broader to the point where the courts essentially said, we'll assume that the agency has the power uh, to uh, decide what its its uh, authority is and to decide where there is a gap and to fill it up in any way it wants to, so long as it's reasonable, even if that's not what the statute said. Hmm. Um, what's the role now, then? I'm sorry, excuse me? Uh, what's, the, what are, uh, what's, what's the role, what's the interpretation now um, well, after, after this the decision? the current members of the Supreme Court have been uh, fairly skeptical of the Chevron doctrine. It is, it is still around, uh, mm-hmm. but first of all, they have not applied the Chevron doctrine in about seven or eight years for the purpose of upholding a uh, federal statute. Uh, moreover, they have been placing limitations of the Chevron doctrine, and the case of uh, West Virginia versus EPA is a good example of the court um, imposing a pretty strict limit on Chevron. What the court announced in the uh, uh, West Virginia case was something called the Major Questions Doctrine, under which if a, a uh, issue before the agency is so large and would have such uh, significant impacts on the entire economy, uh, then the assumption is that Congress didn't delegate authority to the agency to answer that question unless Congress has said so explicitly. If it doesn't say anything one way or the other, the assumption is that Congress did not delegate that power. Mm-hmm. And I guess what makes and doesn't make a major questions we'll have to figure out later. Uh, that's right. And obviously, that is going to be a, a subject of future cases. But the, the court in this particular instance gave a number of uh, things that, that uh, lower courts ought to be looking at in deciding what is a major question. Uh, I think it was very significant here that uh, the interpretation that was developed by the Obama administration uh, had not ever been used before by EPA. The Clean Air Act was adopted in the Nixon administration in the early 1970s, and this provision of the Act, Section 114D, had been interpreted fairly narrowly. And then all of a sudden, years later, uh, EPA discovers a newfound source of authority. And so uh, it was that switch in uh, interpretation by the agency that certainly uh, raised alarms at the Supreme Court that they said, well, it's maybe if the law is adopted and immediately thereafter the agency says this is our interpretation, that that might be plausible, even if it, the question involved seems at first blush to be fairly major. But when they wait 40 years and somehow all of a sudden come up with a new uh, interpretation, uh, there's a lot of reason for skepticism. Got it. So let's talk about your work on this issue. So um, 
uh, you and your colleagues, you're not the plaintiff, you're not the defense. What did you do in this case? Our organization was one of a number that filed what are called amicus curiae briefs in support of West Virginia. Uh, our organization is an organization that's dedicated to try to make, to make sure that there are limits on the authority of the administrative state. And one of the ways that we try to do that is to cut back on the Chevron doctrine. In fact, we have several of our own cases that are currently before the Supreme Court uh, that uh, one of them in particular asks that the entire Chevron doctrine be overturned. But we jumped into the West Virginia case to give uh, our reasons why we thought that Chevron ought to be limited and to support West Virginia. And of course, West Virginia, in a sense, was kind of like us in that they were not a party to the original lawsuit, but they realized that the coal production within their state would be uh, uh, severely curtailed if the Obama administration rule were put into effect. And so they had an interest uh, in the outcome of the case in the same way that we did as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So these uh, uh, amicus curiae briefs or amicus curiae briefs, um, which are friends of the court, who are just like interested parties that that say, uh, tell the courts, hey, here's an argument you might consider or some facts or information. Like, what are they useful for? Well, they oftentimes are very useful to provide the court with a perspective that's a little bit different than the perspective that the parties themselves are raising. Um, and there have been many instances over the years where the court has issued a decision and it has said we are relying on an argument that was uh, submitted to the court by one of these friends of the court. Now, sometimes I think these friend-of-the-court briefs can be a little bit overkill because you sometimes get cases that have so many briefs that you have to wonder how many of them were actually read. Certainly, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court's recent decision on abortion uh, generated so much interest that the number of amicus curiae briefs filed in that case numbered in the hundreds, and, mm -hmm. uh, and who knows how many of them were actually read. We like to think at the uh, NCLA that uh, if uh, that our reputation is good enough so that if there are a lot of briefs filed by friends of the court in a case, that ours will be one that they will choose to read. But in any event, there were few enough briefs filed in the uh, West Virginia case that hopefully all of them were read. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in this, what did you bring to the table that the lawyers for West Virginia were not? Well, one issue that we raised that goes a little bit beyond of the major questions doctrine is an issue that the court ended up not ruling on, but I think uh, it's, it's one that perhaps informed the decision of the court to some extent. It's called the non-delegation doctrine. Under the non-delegation doctrine, uh, we point out that Article One of the Constitution says that all legislative power resides with Congress and that uh, it further says that Congress may not delegate uh, its legislative power to others so that uh, you know, no matter how bright a person you or I are, uh, we 
are not the ones who are supposed to be writing the laws. So that uh, if Congress passed a law saying Richard Samp uh, uh, is hereby empowered to pass all laws involving air pollution, uh, that would be un unconstitutional under Article One. And that same rule applies not only to delegating power to uh, to me and you, but also to an administrative agency. So over the years, what the Supreme Court has said under the non-delegation doctrine is that, yes, Congress can delegate authority uh, of a federal agency uh, to uh, write the details of a law. Um, mm -hmm. If they're administering a program, they have to be able to write the procedures for how the program is going to operate. Uh, but the, while they can delegate the uh, power to uh, administer the law, what they can't do is delegate uh, the power to make policy. So that the uh, the rule that the Supreme Court has adopted is a fairly loose one. All that Congress must do is to provide some sort of intelligible principle that uh, uh, Congress can use uh, in deciding how far uh, uh, it's going to uh, regulate. However, in this particular case, we raised the argument that if the law is as broad as EPA is claiming it is, if they're claiming that they have a right basically to uh, revamp the entire uh, power grid in this country uh, uh, to the extent EPA feels is necessary to uh, uh, make the air cleaner, that's not really an intelligible principle to guide EPA, and therefore the statute would be unconstitutional as a uh, improper delegation of Congress's legislative power. Now, we didn't say that, that you should strike down the statute. Rather, we said that's a reason to interpret the statute more narrowly, because if you, if you interpreted it as broadly as EPA did, that would have rendered the statute unconstitutional. Gotcha. How important was your brief to this decision? Well, uh, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, they did not <laughs> cite our brief in particular in their decision, nor did they even cite the non-delegation doctrine in, mm -hmm. in the ideas that you were pushing. Yeah. Um, however, I would like to think that the court uh, took that factor, the non-delegation doctrine, into account when uh, uh, issuing its decision. And I think that to the extent it took it into account, I think our brief uh, did an excellent job of bringing to the court's attention an issue that, that perhaps was not fully presented by the parties themselves. Mm -hmm. Why should people be concerned about how much uh, the court defers to the executive? Uh, let me tie that again. How much do you think people should be concerned about court's interpretations about how much the executive can accomplish? Like the core issue here. Um, I think they should be very concerned. <laughs> the reason that we have three branches of government in this country is to make sure that, that uh, each of the three branches acts as a check on the other one. And uh, if Congress turns over all of its powers uh, to a federal agency, then the agency basically not only administers the law, but also writes the law. And, of course, uh, administrative agencies have been going beyond that even. I mean, many of the enforcement agencies in this country have established their own system of courts. 
they have what they call administrative law judges, so that if the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example, thinks you have violated the securities law, they have a choice. They can either sue you in a federal court or they can sue you in front of one of their own administrative law judges. And given the choice, EPA, excuse me, SEC says, well, we would just as soon have a home court advantage. I mean, we're the ones who appoint these ALJs and they could lose their jobs if they don't uh, 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 pay attention to what we say. So, of course, they, they prefer to go in front of mm-hmm. one of these ALJs and therefore individual citizens can have their rights deprived of them, not as a result of a trial in front of a federal court that is independent, but rather in front of an administrative law judge. So I, I want to dig out on this because it just seems such like a, a basic affront to, you know, just your standard high school civics understanding of what the government is, which is, again, you've got the separation of powers, you've got the three branches of government, and yet we have so much of law where, where the executive gets to write, uh, write the rules, gets to enforce the rules, and, and also you're saying gets to adjudicate on, on those rules. Um, I mean, how did it get so bad between uh, in the separation of powers? I think many people point to uh, first to the administration of Woodrow Wilson and then to the mm-hmm. new, new Deal. I think there was a real fear, particularly during the Wilson administration, that uh, large corporations had too much power. And uh, I think this uh, in particular was uh, derived from the antitrust laws that uh, you had really big trusts like Standard Oil and some of the other large trusts that, that basically had monopolies on huge industries. And the fear was that the government wasn't strong enough to take on Standard Oil. And so uh, uh, the Wilson administration said the answer to this is to create administrative agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, like the Interstate Commerce Commission, that would be able to uh, to regulate and could do so quickly because the fear was that the best lawyers in the country were all being hired by Standard Oil and uh, the courts would never be convinced to rule uh, against these large trusts, but that if you had these agencies that had a lot of power, that would be a way to uh, uh, to control Standard Oil. And then you got, particularly by the time of the New Deal, where uh, you had uh, the, the size of the federal government was increased dramatically because you had all sorts of programs like Social Security being set up uh, and you had uh, uh, regulation of securities and you had regulations of the labor market that uh, the argument was that, well, maybe back in the horse and buggy era, you didn't really need a huge uh, central bureaucracy in Washington because government was so small and uncomplicated. Uh, And therefore, but now we really need to have administrative agencies that uh, can run things because it's just too complicated to ask Congress to be able to write the laws with these kind of details. So those, those were the arguments Mm -hmm. anyway that were given for increasing administrative power, but it's really just ballooned ever since then. Well, that's an interesting story about the Overton window. Again, like the basic civic premise of the separation of powers. And then for whatever reason in this era, era, it seemed to be very unpopular, or at least to try and do something about trusts and about um, uh, 
you know, uh, national recovery became more popular and it became popular to do it through the administrative agencies for whatever reason, like the, uh, it was not, uh, we, we had to do it that way and not through the legislature or through, uh, through Congress. Um, but that was allowed, that was popular, and courts kind of ruled that way too. And now it seems like it's shifting back a little bit. Um, you know, is that kind of what, what you're thinking is, is going yeah, on with this I case? think so. I mean, first of all, you have a shift in the judges in the Supreme Court who feel that mm-hmm. way. But also I do think that there is a certain amount of popular revolt at the idea that uh, faceless bureaucrats can tell them what to do. People have always had the option, if they didn't like the law, to petition their members of Congress and to vote them out of office if they didn't like what they were doing. But you don't really have that same option when it comes Mm -hmm. to independent federal agencies. They are not elected by anybody. In many instances, the president really doesn't have authority to remove them. They can only Mm -hmm. be removed for cause. And and so that, I think... popular opinion is beginning to turn against that. Yeah. So that's that's very interesting because, like, as I mentioned in the introduction, legislators are bound by what is popular or at least they're sensitive. It, But the constraints on the president are very different. I mean, at most, people can only vote the president out once. Um, and they get to interpret uh, their election as a mandate for whatever policy they'd like. They can bury a lot of what they do in technicalities and ignore any negative response unless it comes with a broad and intense opposition from voters. So, so for instance, the EPA has rules on gas can designs, which made gas cans worse for consumers. And theoretically, it results in less spilling of gasoline. I don't think that's the kind of law that you get through Congress, but it, you clearly can get that through the administrative state. So do you think the Overton window on executive authority is just naturally wider than it is for Congress? Um, I think so. I mean, for the very reasons you expressed, that, that if people are not happy with EPA, there really is no easy way for them to to petition those, those EPA officials. And I think while... Of course, Congress likes to think of themselves as the lawmaking body. When it really, when it comes down to it, Congress, in in many ways, is quite happy to turn things over for, to an agency, because a lot of the decisions that are now being made by administrative agencies involve very controversial subjects. And however, uh, whatever rule you come up with, there are going to be some people who are not happy mm-hmm. with it, and. Uh, most members of Congress don't like anybody being unhappy with them. They love it when people, when everybody likes what they're doing. So they can pass a law saying, we hereby decree that the air should be clean and it's up to EPA to decide how to do it. Then if EPA comes up with a popular rule, well, that same member of Congress who voted for the law can say, oh, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I think maybe they've gone too far there. Uh, and, and I'm not responsible for what they did. I didn't vote for that unpopular rule. So, I mean, it, it's very easy for for members of Congress to, to go along with all of this. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, of uh, deferring to the administrative act or uh, administrations to implement these rules is a way to have your cake and eat it too, which is like, look, we did something. We did something that is popular. I don't care that actually administering it might be unpopular. Um, we've dealt with the issue of have, have someone else um, deal with the consequences. Uh, but isn't 
isn't that what we want from our legislators as in to like when there is a controversial matter, they find the most popular solution and not defer to the administration? I mean, isn't that the better way of, of how these things should work? I think so. And it's I definitely disagree with the argument that it's too complicated for Congress to write detailed legislation because all the time when it wants to, Congress yeah. writes special rules and special bills that are very, very detailed so that it oftentimes will prescribe the precise number of widgets that can be imported from Ecuador in any given year. Certainly, the Internal Revenue Code is a good example of a law that is thousands of pages long that provide pretty much every detail about uh, when you owe taxes. So, so Congress can do it if it wants to. Uh, it just doesn't want to very often. Yeah. Now, I always think that whenever the president uh, switches over, there's always a chance that legislators will learn a valuable lesson about the separation of powers. But that hasn't happened yet. I mean, will it require continued effort from the Supreme Court to get legislators to legislate instead of deferring to the executive? I think it will take uh, continued effort from courts. And unfortunately for courts, uh, they have many of the same incentives that Congress has to go along with the administrative state. Because for the typical federal district judge who is hearing a dispute about is EPA complying with its mandate? You know, they that member of that that federal judge is probably not a scientist. He doesn't know the details of air pollution. He doesn't know whether or not uh, uh, what EPA has done uh, is really necessary to provide to achieve a certain standard of of clean air in a particular city, uh, and. So it's a lot of work for, for that judge to to bone up on that area and try to come up with an answer on his own as to whether or not EPA has complied with the law. So the easy answer is, well... And he technically doesn't have to because the courts have already said, look, there's a rational explanation for them having this power, then they have it. Right. And so they a lot of the lower courts like Chevron deference. It makes their, their job much easier. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what does the future look like on, on the non-delegation doctrine? Well, I, I think the non-delegation doctrine uh, is never going to be enforced to the extent that uh, we would like it to be, where Congress has to provide many of the details. However, we would think at the very least uh, Congress, excuse me, the courts ought to to really put some teeth into the current standards, the, the standard that I mentioned earlier, where the, where the where Congress has to provide an um, uh, intelligible uh, standard, because basically the way it is, that standard is now enforced by the courts, uh, whatever Congress has done is always thought to be intelligible and. The U.S. Supreme Court has not struck down a law under the non-delegation doctrine since the mid-1930s, uh, even though there are many laws out there that, uh, uh, in effect, say uh, the agency is hereby delegated authority to, to adopt whatever standard is reasonable. I mean, that, that hardly is an intelligible principle uh, mm -hmm. to guide the agency. So at the very least, we would like to have 
some sort of teeth put into the intelligible principle standard. And if even two or three laws in the next 20 years are struck down by the Supreme Court based on that standard, that hopefully would teach Congress a lesson to, uh, uh, to provide better standards in the future. Rich, thank you for helping us understand what's within the Overton window. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.